Hi, it's Ellen here from Seneca Learning. Today, we're going to cover some A-level history. We'll be looking at the Reformation under the Tudors. And in particular, we will cover misconceptions about the Reformation, the Catholic Church in the early 16th century, Henry VIII and the break from Rome, and we will evaluate the impact of Henry's religious reforms. So firstly, was England Protestant by the end of Henry VIII's reign? This is a fascinating question because it addresses several misconceptions. In popular memory, the Reformation is often interpreted as being a quick and comprehensive process. However, this is a myth. Today, historians prefer to describe the religious change in England during the 16th century as the slow reformation. Throughout this episode, I'm going to mention some historians. This is because being able to cite a few historians will really take your answer in an exam to the next level. So don't worry if you don't remember them all. View this as a helpful starting point. Here, we're going to hone in on religious change under Henry VIII. This is because it allows us to ask questions about the traditional Catholic Church before the break from Rome. We get to really unpack what Henry wanted from the break from Rome, and we can evaluate the religious settlement by 1547, Henry's death. So firstly, the Catholic Church. Traditionally, the Catholic Church was interpreted as corrupt, obscurantist, and ultimately moribund. But why has this interpretation come about? In all likelihood, this came about because later Protestants wanted to craft a narrative where it seemed like Protestantism was obviously popular. However, this interpretation has been challenged. Historians have now come to argue that the Catholic Church had a rich culture in the first quarter of the 16th century. Fundamentally, the church was a central part of community life. We should never limit our view of religion to theology alone. Religion was infused in everything, politics, culture, and society. Thus, the church was a pillar in the English nation. A key historian who revised interpretations of the late medieval Catholic Church was Duffy in his book Stripping of the Altars. Duffy presented a vision of Catholicism which had roots in parish solidarity. In terms of sermons, we always must remember that to a largely illiterate laity, it wouldn't hugely matter if the sermon was in Latin or in English. What really mattered was the visual imagery, the traditional ceremony, and the Catholic rituals. So some historians argue that piety in the late medieval age was thriving. Davis and other historians suggest that there was pressure to reform from the Catholic Church from within. This can be seen in Wolsey's reforms. For example, he tried to address issues such as absenteeism, 
simony, and clerics holding multiple positions in the church. Wolseley placed an emphasis on education as he believed this would help improve the quality of clergymen. All this suggests that there was impetus for reform from within the traditional church. A desire for change, therefore, was not unique to Luther. Next, we'll move on to think about Henry VIII himself. Fundamentally, the great matter was at the heart of the break from Rome. This refers to Henry's desire to have his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled. The great matter was driven by two reasons. Firstly, the lack of a male heir. This issue speaks to a key preoccupation of Henry's, the need to create a lasting dynasty. His emphasis on this can be seen in paintings of him, which presented him as virile and fecund. Secondly, the great matter was driven by Henry's attraction to Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn had Protestant leanings herself and would go on to encourage Henry VIII to drive religious reform. So, back to the great matter. Henry VIII wanted Wolsey as papal legate to persuade the Pope to annul his marriage. Wolsey's failure to do so is at the heart of his downfall and also, perhaps, the rise of Cromwell. Cromwell pursued legal means to gain an annulment from Catherine of Aragon. He based his claim on scriptures and the book of Leviticus. He argued that it was not possible for a man to marry his brother's wife. Conveniently, they ignored another passage which completely contradicted this. In understanding how Henry achieved religious change, we should look at his relationship with Parliament. This is because he chose to push through his reforms through statute law, not through royal proclamation. This was an unprecedented use of Parliament and its role ultimately changed. This was because it gave Parliament a role in changing the country's religion. Furthermore, the King in Parliament now represented the ultimate authority. Parliament passed several acts in the 1530s, but here I really want to focus on the Act of Supremacy of 1534. This piece of legislation brought about the biggest change in English religion. When looking at the break of Rome, we must understand how much Henry loved the royal supremacy. He truly believed that authority over the church was rightfully his. Therefore, following the break from Rome, the overlap between the secular and the spiritual became greater than ever before. Next, we should look at the impact of the Henrician Reformation. And we should ask, was it actually Protestant? Firstly, it is incredibly difficult to pinpoint exactly what Protestant really meant in the 1530s and 40s. 
there were reformers who wanted to change the church. However, there was considerable disagreement over what they wanted. The main thing which unified them was their anti-papism, which means loathing of the Pope. However, after that, there was a diverse range of opinions and agendas. When considering Henry VIII himself, it is difficult to pigeonhole him into any category. To an extent, he was a reformer. For example, he passed the Act of Ten Articles, which rejected four of the Catholic's seven sacraments. He pushed the dissolution of the monasteries, and he demanded that the Bible be translated into the vernacular, which was English. Yet, Henry also supported the traditional church. For example, he attended Catholic Mass nearly every day of his life. He also defended some of the sacraments, in particular transubstantiation, which is the belief that the substance of the wine and bread in communion actually became Christ's body and blood. Next, is there any way we can explain Henry VIII's behaviour in the 1530s and 40s? There have been several theories on this topic. Firstly, was Henry VIII bullied by factions? It is clear that Anne Boleyn and her reformer faction had influence over Henry VIII. But did they have enough influence to push Henry into the Act of Ten Articles? Also, he then later overturned this when he pursued the more conservative Act of Six Articles. This act banned Protestant beliefs like married clergy, giving the wine as well as the bread at Holy Communion, and the Act of Six Articles also reaffirmed Catholic sacraments, most importantly of which, transubstantiation. Secondly, was he just very inconsistent and impulsive? Should we understand Henry's behaviour in an ad hoc way? There was very little logic, and perhaps he had no clear strategy of what he wanted Protestantism to be like in England. Thirdly, was he just making small, faltering steps towards a Protestant settlement? We always must remember that Protestantism was not ready-made. It took time and was always being renegotiated. Fourthly, was Henry VIII seeking a middle way between Luther's religion and Catholicism? Finally, was Henry VIII playing the part of an Old Testament king? Henry had used the Old Testament, in particular the passage from Leviticus, to get out of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Perhaps he used the Old Testament as inspiration he cast himself as a King David or a King Solomon. Both were pious kings in the Old Testament. This, arguably, makes sense as these kings did not drive doctrinal reform. However, they were known for their iconoclasm 
and assertions of religious authority. By his death in 1547, it is unclear what Henry really wanted from religious reform. From there, Edward VI and his Regency Council forged their own path towards religious change. Finally, we're going to consider the response to Henry's Reformation. There are actually several ways of interpreting religious change in the early 16th century. This religious change should largely be seen as being driven through political players from above. The agenda was set out, particularly under Edward VI, by a small group of reformers, such as Cranmer. Yet, what was the attitude of the ordinary public and the population? According to Hay, who studied Tudor Lancashire, the laity were not disillusioned with Catholicism after the break from Rome, and thus it was actually quite difficult for the government to apply the Reformation on this conservative society. Furthermore, Dickens studied wills to try and understand people's attitudes towards the church. He noted that many people still bequeathed money to the Catholic Church in their wills. This indicates that they still had Catholic sympathies. However, we must always remember that quantifying conversion may not be the best way to understand the Reformation. Ryrie, on the other hand, argues that the majority of the English population were obedient and acquiescent to change. This, arguably, is the best way to understand the response to Henry's Reformation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Today we covered misconceptions about the Reformation, the Catholic Church in the early 1500s, Henry VIII and the break from Rome, and we evaluated the impact of Henry's religious reforms. We hope you found this useful, and if you have any feedback for us, then please let us know in the comments. Thank you.